Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Soulvox Radio presents Evolve with your host, Robin White Turtle Disney. Hi, this is Robin White Turtle Disney. The show is Evolve, and I have a very special guest today. Uh, Joseph Selby, The Physics of God. He just finished this book, and it is an amazing uh, compilation, and we'll be talking about that this hour. I'm so excited about it. Welcome, Joseph. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I want to just tell you a little bit about him. He's, he's an author. Um, he's been a dedica- dedicated meditator for over 40 years and has taught yoga and meditation throughout the U.S. and Europe. He's known for creating bridges of understanding between the modern evidence-based discoveries of science and the ancient experience-based discoveries of the mystics. He maintains several blogs, including Intersection, which explores how spirituality connects with culture and science. He's also authored The Yugas, a factual look at India's tradition of cyclical history. He's uh, authored a sci-fi fantasy series, The Protector's Diaries, inspired by the abilities of mystics. He's a founding member of Ananda, a meditation-based community and spiritual movement, inspired by Paramahansa Yogananda. He lives with his wife at Ananda Village near Nevada City. His website is physicsandgod.com. Welcome, Joseph. <laughs> Joseph Selby. Nice to be here. Great. So I wanted to talk to you about this book particularly because I was so excited that you're bringing in different parts of physics and uh, connecting it with the mystics. Um, How did you get started researching this book? Um, Because it's quite an undertaking. Well, it's been an avocation of mine really since college days. I was very much into science and had actually planned on um, having a career in science of some kind or another, but I was deep into it in college. And so that uh, interest has stayed with me. But something else happened in college, which um, in my generation was not that uncommon. It's that I had a psychedelic experience. Mm. It was profoundly moving. It was, uh, this phrase gets used a lot, and so it might sound a bit trite, but it was genuinely life-changing. Because Mm. from there after, I wanted to try to understand, and most of all, I wanted to experience again this deep sense of connectedness and peace and intuition that I experienced in that, um, in that trip. And that led me to the path of yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. And so I've always kept kind of both parts of myself uh, very much alive uh, ever since then. Mm-hmm. And then in the last, oh, 10 years or so, I got serious about um, trying to knit together these two aspects of reality that many, many people, unfortunately, think are incompatible. Mm-hmm. But the more I have uh, you know, studied the emerging paradigm of science and then as 
in my personal life, studied the lives of saints and sages and adepts and mystics and put those two together, I see very, very clearly that um, they support each other, that there is no difference. You right. could say that the underlying uh, assumption of my book is that there is and can only be one reality. Mm -hmm. can't be two realities. There can't be science's reality and religion's reality. They're both just looking at the same reality in different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was captivated by that kind of understanding and wanted to find the particular parts of physics especially, but science in general, that supported what the mystics were describing directly. And that's really the essence of the book. Uh-huh. That's fascinating. Well, I find that true in energy medicine as well. Um, you know, to me, quantum physics explains energy medicine really well and psychic phenomena. Um, so I, I'm, I'm right with you here. <laughs> uh, in the first chapter... You talk about the religion of science. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I, I started there because uh, there are uh, a number of people who are reluctant to look into any kind of spiritual teachings or spiritual practices because they're mostly convinced that science has ruled out any possibility of the various claims of science, I mean, various claims of religion being true, life after death, miracles, personal transcendence, and more, they are persuaded by what they think is science. But in fact, science isn't a monolithic institution that has a certain set of beliefs, certain set of convictions about reality. Mm -hmm. Science is just a method of making discoveries. And then those discoveries are interpreted by not only scientists, but all of us. We all have a perfect right to look at those discoveries and say, hmm, we, if we put those together in this way, it suggests that reality is like this. Mm -hmm. But there is a kind of a hard core of scientists who are generally lumped together under the, um, the banner of being scientific materialists. Mm -hmm. And they really believe that everything that is or ever will be is the result of matter and energy interactions and that there really isn't anything else. If it isn't measurable by today's instruments, that it doesn't exist, and that the things that can be measured, energy and matter, have to be the explanation for everything else. And so they tell us, with great conviction, that the origin of life is eventually going to be determined to be a matter of um, energy interacting with matter in a specific way that the origin of consciousness is going to be found to be 
uh, completely in our brains, some, some biochemical process that takes place with electrical stimuli mixed in that creates consciousness. And, you know, they're fairly convinced of this. I would say they're deeply convinced of it. And thus, it really qualifies as a belief system mm. or a religion because right. they're just saying these things are true even though they haven't necessarily proven or shown or demonstrated how those things actually come about. So calling it a religion is perhaps uh, going to an extreme, but I went to the extreme just to make the point that science is for every man, for every person to make up their minds about what those discoveries mean. Mm -hmm. And while there is this strong group, which is a minority, by the way, according to Pew Research, uh, only 41% of scientists hold this view of scientific materialism. And even more surprising, 51% of scientists uh, believe in some higher consciousness, higher power, higher intelligence, uh, that has a role in creation, has a role in how reality works. Mm -hmm. So by no means are all scientists wedded to this particular belief system. Uh, and, and there's plenty of room, plenty of discoveries in science, in the, in the process of science, that emerge from the process of science, that actually easily support um, the, the claims of religion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those are, you would say, are the scientific materialists who really want to quantify everything right down to the cell level. <laughs> well, they are what's known as um, reductionists in their approach. And mm -hmm. that's that's kind of goes hand, hand in glove with the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Reduce things down to the smallest components, and then you look at how those components interact, whether those are um, medicines in a cell or atoms in a um, particle accelerator. They're, they want to know the fundamental behaviors of the super tiny. They're reduced down to the irreducibly small. Right. And then they believe that by knowing how these things uh operate on the tiny levels, they can put it together and show how they create these bigger emergent behaviors such as consciousness and the origin of life and the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's a conviction. It's, a, it's an approach to understanding reality that uh, kind of fits well with the scientific mindset. Right, right. But 51%, that's a lot of um, scientists. I mean, that's a majority of scientists that do not believe necessarily in the re reductionist view. So that's pretty good. <laughs> and I think it's probably improved quite a bit over the last 30 years or so, don't you think? Yeah, I think that number is probably growing. Yeah. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is that the scientific materialists uh, control most of the journals, and they control most, so it's very difficult to get funding for any kind of experimentation that falls outside of the scientific materialistic 
model. And if you do manage to get funding or you do manage to uh, perform some studies, it's very difficult to get the results of those mm -hmm. into the, what are considered to be the most reputable journals. Yeah, yeah. Well, sounds like someone needs to have other journals that they can submit to, you know, like uh, alternative journals that... Well, there are. There uh -huh. actually are quite a few. They yeah. just don't carry the weight of the other journals yet. Right, right. Uh, but I think the tide is turning. I think there are more and more people who are realizing that the uh, materialist point of view is somewhat of a dead end for things like explaining consciousness and explaining the origin of life. Mm -hmm. And they really are opening up more. But it's, it's slow. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, but I think it's inexorable. Right, right. Well, you also talk about the science of religion. And can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Because different, differing from the religion of science, <laughs> the science of religion gives a little different view. Yeah, what I wanted to do there was, uh, whenever you use the phrase religion, and you're comparing science and religion, the religion part of that phrase is very fuzzy in people's minds. Science seems exact, but religion seems like it could mean just about anything, and and I think that that's true. It can mean the tenets of religion, it can mean dogmas, it can mean uh, rituals. But what I wanted to really compare were the actual direct experiences of the saints, sages, adepts, yogis, um, monks, Tibetan monks, Zen monks, uh, monks and nuns in the Christian tradition, all of these more inward uh, practices mm -hmm. that are part and parcel of most religions don't necessarily rise to much prominence for the average person when they think of religion. Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of think of those those people are this very you know fanatical odd minority uh, who, who take it too far you know? right. they take religion to an extreme but it's really only when you study what they say is the results of various spiritual practices like meditation like devotional prayer that you begin to see the commonality across all religion. Mm -hmm. I like to state it in a, in a simple formula, which is those people who, through discipline and, and determination, who can sit perfectly still for long periods of time and who take their minds inwardly and become completely absorbed in non-physical, non-sensory uh, things, such as, you know, uh, uh, focusing on subtle energy in the body, mm -hmm. focusing on uh, the, the movement of energy in the spine and nervous system, going with their attention deeper and deeper into non-physical realities, they inevitably 
it's law-like that when a person becomes perfectly still and totally inwardly absorbed, they have transcendent experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These transcendent experiences can be uh, light, can be love, can be peace, can be other realms, mm -hmm. can be heavenly realms. But if you read the lives of all of these saints and sages who have had transcendent experiences, then you see the real science of religion, and you see the real uh, common foundation to all religions. Right. Well, in Sri Yukteswar certainly talked about that, and so did Yogananda, and many others have talked about, you know, meditate and you're going to get there. You know, here's, um, I know uh, even Amma, you know, she gives you a mantra, and if you, if you do the mantra, you, just, you know, do the mantra. These are the things I ask you to do, the mantra, and do it every day, and, you know, here you are, <laughs> you know, and uh, donate to the poor, <laughs> you know, like, Give, give of yourself, you know. So, um, but the the main thing is meditation um, in all in all of them, even in the Christian mystics, you know, those that transcended things like Saint Teresa of Avila. Uh, she she had ecstatic experiences in devotional prayer. So, yeah. you know, and she was basically meditating uh, without calling it meditation. Right. right. You know, they sit at their preview and try to become as still as possible and increase their devotional zeal through prayer. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, and that points out the, the kind of truth of this science of religion is that anyone who practices it, even inadvertently, mm -hmm. and by that I mean in particular people who have near-death experiences, mm -hmm. they didn't intend to become perfectly still and completely inwardly absorbed, right. they did. Right. And when they did, they started to have transcendent experiences. Right. I love what you wrote about the near-death experiences and all the quotes that you had there. Um, uh, as, as we talked before the program, I had a near-death experience when I was 17, and most intuitives that I know have had one at some point. I um, I took a, a private survey one time in a psychic fair just to see, how, hey, how many of you guys have had a near-death experience? And every single one of the psychics in the room had raised their hand. And I was, I was really yeah. fascinated by that. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, yeah. if you've had that experience, and I, I haven't, I'll just uh -huh. be clear that I haven't, but from all the reading I've done and from talking with folks like you, who have had that experience, there's no doubt left mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that these other realities exist. Yeah. And so there's a perfect comfort with trying to tune into subtle realities, and it kind of opens the doors more than for people who have not had such a powerful and clear um, you know, confirmation mm -hmm. of that other reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a gong going off definitely for me. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. <laughs> so, I'm talking with Joseph Selby, who is the author of The Physics of God 
It's got a great foreword by Amit Goswami, and I want to say that it's one of the most clear descriptions of different kinds of physics study, quantum physics and um, materialistic science and neuroscience that I've ever read, so I want to really, can't recommend it enough. Uh, his website is physicsandgod.com, and uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. This is Robin White Turtle Listening, and the show is Evolved. Hi, I'm Robin White Turtle Lisney, and I'm glad that you're listening to my show, Evolve. I wanted to let you know about a new book that I have called Mosaic, New and Collected Poems. It's a, a volume of 30 years of poetry uh, that I'm very excited about, and it's being published by Bluebone Books. Uh, in addition to that, I also have Dancing Up the Moon, uh, Living a Sacred Life, uh, more recent books are Heart Path, Heart Path Handbook, and Poems for the Lost Deer. All of these books, uh, the last three books, are published by Blue Bone Books. I'm also an energy medicine practitioner, and I am a psychic and a medium. And I've been a radio host on Evolve for a number of years, about five years, where I interview authors on the cutting edge of change authors who are uh, writing innovative things, authors who are exploring uh, new consciousness and also bringing old traditions back into the current time to help us uh, at this time of uh, the world. And uh, now we'll go back to the show. We're back. This is Robin White Turtle Listening, and the show is Evolve. And I'm with uh, Joseph Selby, who is the author of uh, this wonderful book, Physics: The Physics of God. Uh, it unifies quantum physics, consciousness, M theory, heaven, neuroscience, and transcendence. Uh, he's he's combining the um, neuroscience and quantum physics with psychic phenomena and mystical revelation and it's it's really quite an interesting book he's also the author of several other books including the yugas the protector's diaries which was a sci-fi series that he wrote and um he's part of ananda and studied with uh, in the spiritual movement inspired by paramahansa yogananda uh he lives up in nevada city and um uh, his website is physicsandgod.com. So welcome back, Joseph. And we were starting to talk a little bit. You were talking about the science of religion and the religion of science and scientific materialism. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that materialism, scientific materialism, as opposed to quantum physics. Uh, you draw very clear distinctions for readers. Um, can you give us a little summary of Quantum physics is really what's taking off in string theory and all these wonderful theories <laughs> that help us um, understand the universe in a deeper way and also connect with the mystics. So can you talk a little bit about the two, the differences of the science approaches? Well, quantum physics is notorious for what has come to be known as quantum weirdness. <laughs> And uh, quantum weirdness, I think, is just a way of saying it doesn't 
that these findings that are considered to be quantum weirdness are so because they don't fit what we would think of as our common sense of how things should behave. So for one example, it was um, discovered in the 1920s, 30s, maybe 40s, that era, that everything that exists, be it considered energy or matter, can actually exist in both states. So atoms can exist as energy, they can behave like waves, and what we normally think of as energy, such as light, uh, can also behave like particles. So in the uh, case of light, those particles are called photons. Uh-huh. This has come to be known as wave-particle duality. And it's really not in um, you know, any contention that this is true. But when you think about it, when you think about your desk or your car or your body, behaving like waves, it's counterintuitive. It mm-hmm. doesn't add up to what your normal everyday experience is. And there's a lot of things like that in quantum physics that led physicists to kind of deeper and deeper levels of non-material thinking. Mm-hmm. So one of the most famous experiments, often referred to as the, the double-slip experiment, which involved um, sending either light as a wave or light as particles through two slits and then seeing how they interact once they're on the other side of the slits. This resulted in a conclusion that remains undisputed, or I should say remains um, undisproven, even today, Mm -hmm. almost 100 years after it was discovered, Mm -hmm. that all of these waveforms of either light or of matter only behave like matter, as particles, as things that we touch and interact with through our senses, only when there is an intelligent observer. And this is, I think, maybe the weirdest of all the quantum weirdness. It's basically saying, if no one is around, then everything that we think is uh, an enduring physical presence actually reverts into an energy wave form. Mm-hmm. Mm. Using the old saw of, if a tree falls in the forest, and no one is around, does it make a sound? Mm-hmm. Quantum says, if there's no one around, there's no tree, there's no forest, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is kind of profoundly disquieting. Right. And when people first encounter this, they think, you know, these guys just have to be crazy. They've done too many experiments, they're too abstract, Uh, this can't possibly be real. But this basic experiment has been conducted over and over and over again, and it remains a conviction of quantum physics that in order for matter to behave like matter, there has to be an observer. 
And so this set a lot of those physicists, those pioneering quantum physicists, down the path of trying to understand why. How could this possibly be uh, the way reality works? Mm -hmm. And many of them came to the conclusion that there has to be another layer of reality that is more fundamental than matter and energy, mm-hmm. which they just simply referred to as consciousness. Right. And that consciousness is something uh, that is omnipresent it's everywhere. It's not just in our brains. And that that consciousness is the, um, the field, the matrix, the reality that gives reality to all energy and all matter. And so this is why quantum physics is often referred to as the, um, you know, kind of the gateway in scientific terms for the, uh, you know, kind of potential explanations for what's often labeled the paranormal, mm-hmm. for the experience, etc. Because it, it alone of the, the various uh, scientific disciplines really embraced consciousness, universal consciousness, as a uh, necessary reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such a fascinating idea that you have to have an intelligent observer. I wonder if those intelligent observers, and I was, I was wondering this uh, as I was reading the book, have to be human. I mean, certainly animals and native people thought that animals had real superior intelligence to humans in terms of eyesight, like eagles have better eyesight than we do. You know, other animals have uh, have better sense perceptions than we do. Um, I, I wonder if that would include, I'm sure there there haven't been a whole lot of quantum physics experiments with animals, I mean, to figure it out, but I wonder about that. I'm just wondering. Yeah, that. many people do. I often get that question when I give uh, classes and workshops. And the answer, unfortunately, is that we can't know. Yeah. Uh, because the only way we could potentially discover whether a dog is causing, for, uh, causing matter to... Uh, form out of energy is if we in some way measured the dog. So what happens, there's something called the von Neumann chain. It's that everything that we would try to explore to answer that question is one more kind of measurement. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, are we in fact creating the dog who is creating the matter, <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right. Um, there's no way to um, decide that this is the end of this chain. The end of the chain is our own awareness. Right, right. It's well, so they might. Yeah, uh, cockroaches. You name it. They might all, in fact, uh, have that same ability. But there's just no way for us to know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I love the intelligent observer. I mean, that certainly comes into play in terms of a lot of experiments um, where people are trying to 
figure out, um, you know, the the a skeptical observer versus the yes I'm with it observer. <laughs> you know, the attitude of the person makes a huge difference in the reaction or interaction of does does that have does that come into play? People's attitudes about what they're like super skeptical people observing a phenomena versus uh, someone who's like ex- expecting it to be fantastic. I mean, because our expectations, our minds really make a big difference. Well, I think that we see that more in um, placebos, mm-hmm. in placebo studies than in quantum physics per se, mm-hmm. where the uh, expectations in the people who are receiving the placebo actually uh, either result in some kind of physiological change or cure or or don't. Not everybody who receives the placebo, you know, the, the pill that has nothing in it of a medicinal value, mm-hmm. not all of them have the same reaction. And they've, um, they've interviewed people, they've um, they've done studies that indicate that it's more about what they think is going to happen. For example, there was a double-blind study conducted by the British Cancer Group, and they were testing a chemotherapy treatment for stomach cancer. And mm-hmm. they had over 400 people come, and a pretty sizable group was um, given the placebo. And of course, they don't know whether they are or aren't getting the placebo. Nobody tells them they are. It's not uh, made much of in those kind of studies. So most people expect that they're actually getting the real thing. Mm -hmm. And of the people who were receiving placebos, Mm -hmm. 30% of them lost all their hair. Wow. People expect to lose their hair when they go into chemotherapy. Now, others in that group, the other 70% didn't lose their hair. Maybe their expectations were that, you know, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. Some people may have been skeptical to begin with that the uh, treatment would have any effect on them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so it manifested accordingly. But our minds are tremendously powerful in terms of um, their effect on our bodies. Right, right. It should certainly, they certainly are. Our our minds really do create our reality to a large extent. It's my experience anyway. So the question is, did Einstein have it right or not? (laughs) Because wasn't he the one who developed his idea of kind of spurred on quantum physics in the very beginning? Yes, it's ironic that it was from a paper that he wrote um, that the whole discipline of quantum physics arose, but he ended up not really liking where it was going. Mm. He famously said he didn't think God played dice. Mm. Uh, He meant this in relation to the, the... way in which the observer paradox was taken by many quantum physicists that essentially our 
entire world was evolving on the basis of random observations mm-hmm. by people and that depending on the situation they were in and if there was an observer the world might evolve differently if there were different observers at different times and this really bothered Einstein he was a deep believer that there was a colossal intelligence behind all of creation thus he did not think that colossal intelligence God would create a random universe that he felt that um, there was an order to how things manifested mm-hmm. but in his lifetime no one came up with a um, solution that allowed for that quantum physics really seemed to rule out the possibility that uh, matter had some predetermined form before it pops into the form of matter. And according to quantum physics of the time, that wasn't true. But later, uh, other physicists came along after Einstein had passed away and began to give more attention to what's called non-local reality. Non-local is a confusing word. Um, In a way, it just means not here. Um, Reality is beyond the realm of the senses and scientific instruments to measure. And so non-locality is also part of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. You know, a pioneering physicist, one of whom um, was very influential, David Bohm, came up with the notion that the, the ultimate forms that matter takes when it's observed actually reside in this non-local other spaceless reality, this pure energy spaceless reality that um, contains the information about what that particular wave of energy will turn into when observed. Mm -hmm. So in one way, uh, Einstein was ultimately vindicated, but not during his lifetime, so he didn't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in another way, he wasn't, Einstein wasn't all that happy with the notion of non-locality either. (laughs) And uh, he, uh, he resisted what he called the spooky action at a distance that is the uh, implication of entanglement Mm. entanglement has also been proven to be true that two photons can be entangled and no matter how far apart they get even to the edges of the universe when one turns into uh, one pair of qualities that that atom could have, that photon could have, the other will turn into its exact opposite instantaneously. Wow. Thus, theoretically, sending information back and forth faster than the speed of light. So well, that was the part that Einstein didn't like, was how can this information be traveling faster than the speed of light? Mm-hmm. But if the information is moving through non-local reality, 
where there is no distance, mm -hmm. there's no space, then there is no violation of the speed of light. Mm -hmm. Well, that would kind of explain um, why people know instantly when a family member is hurt on the other side of the country or uh, twins that know what's going on with their twin. Does, does it explain that kind of phenomenon? I think so. If you dig deeper into it, and uh, you had mentioned in the in the beginning here that uh, one of the things that I bring up in the book is string theory. Right. String theory is really a way of trying to give some structure to this spaceless non-locality. And string theory is not necessarily doing it because they just want to give structure to it, but because string theory potentially provides a uh, solution to the fact that quantum physics and relativity physics have incompatible mathematics. Mm -hmm. They don't work well together. They almost don't work at all together. And yet, it's clear to everyone that there can only be one reality. So there must be an explanation for why these two uh, very important, very well-known disciplines mm -hmm. um, don't work together. And that is, in a way, the birth of string theory, that it posits that there is another realm altogether, right. non-local realm, that can explain the disparities between these two disciplines. Right, right. And in the course of defining that non-local realm, they opened up the possibility of there being information existing in the non-local realm, which they call the bulk. Mm -hmm. I call it the energy verse because I think bulk is the worst word that physicists have ever come up with to describe something like that. <laughs> uh, it's very it comes from the term the bulk of reality. Oh. So mm -hmm. this realm of energy is so vast that it makes up the bulk of reality. And it's so vast that entire other universes, in fact, virtually an unlimited number of other universes can exist in this other realm, this mm. energy universe. Mm. Well, and bulk is such an unpoetic word. <laughs> they could have come yeah. up with one that's a little more elegant. <laughs> yes, it doesn't really explain much. But let me just uh, connect a dot there for you because I yeah. started down that path right. in response to your uh, comment about does this explain how uh, psychics and others can instantaneously know something, even though that person might be on the other side of the earth. Mm -hmm. And what string theory, and particularly M-theory, which is a version of string theory, have begun to describe, they describe it in mathematics, and then they try to put it in words, and they have to use... Um, you know, forms that we're familiar with to make any sense of it. But basically, they describe a realm in which the forms, the templates, the essence of what is manifesting in our physical world exist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they take it 
to the degree that they say our entire physical universe is a holographic projection. Mm -hmm. And that holographic projection is coming from the hologram which exists in the energy verse. And if you put that together with us as individuals, it means that each of us has a hologram self and a holographic projection self. The holographic projection self is this physical body. The hologram self exists in this realm of subtle energy, always. And that this subtle realm of energy is really where we experience our intuition, mm-hmm. where there is no distance, where there is no space, right. where there are no limitations, that you can heal yourself, right. you can heal others, you can uh, read the thoughts of others, you can look at the past and the present and the future of yourself and others because where there is no space, time doesn't behave in the same way it does here. So string theory and M theory in particular have gone a long way to create a framework that supports the notion of life after death. It gives a location for the heavens Mm -hmm. that near-death experiencers often uh, go to, where there are people, where there are other forms, where there is inexpressibly beautiful landscapes and worlds that are so subtle and at such a high frequency level of energy that they're undetectable from the physical realm. Mm -hmm. But M-theory provides a a way in which to understand how they could exist because all the energies in the energy verse are much higher frequency than the energies that we're able to measure in the physical universe. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, from my perspective as a medium and psychic, what I what I experience is almost a grid work, which goes along kind of with string theory. It's like a grid work that uh, Alex Gray has some marvelous paintings that show the grid work that he did from psychedelic experiences that he had. And and what I, what I experience when I'm communicating for someone or looking for information is is this grid work that's out there, and it's it's like the information comes through the grid work, and it's it's fascinating to watch it, you know, from a an intuitive level to be in those two worlds and see, oh, here it comes, here comes the information, you know, like it really it almost comes down little tubes or it comes. But it comes instantly. There's no, you know, it comes within, you know, 15 seconds of them asking the question. So, which is pretty quick when you think about it. You know, it's faster than you could dial a phone. So it's it's pretty interesting how that stuff works. And I, I'm always kind of in awe of it. You know, it's just like, oh, look at that. There it is. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting to hear the physics theories behind what a lot of us do to try to support other people's understanding and our own understanding, too. So I want to come back and talk about more about Heaven as a Hologram because that was a really fascinating chapter for me. 
And uh, we'll be right back. I'm going to take a little break here. We're talking to Joseph Selby, who is the author of The Physics of God, uh, which helps to understand um, different unified theories of science and religion. And uh, uh, this is Robin White Turtle Listening. The show is Evolve, and we'll be right back. Evolve, nurturing the new in consciousness, the arts, and culture, with your host, Robin White Turtle Lisney. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change, opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. We are all in great need of sustainable ideas for change. Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of our times. Join us the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Evolve. Hi, we're back. This is Robin White Turtle Listney. The show is Evolved, and I'm with author Joseph Selby, the, uh, the author of The Physics of God. Um, this is just a fascinating book, done so well. It's complex. Uh, he makes really complex and obscure ideas very simple and clear. Um, and he's the author of other books, uh, one called The Yugas, uh, and also a sci-fi fantasy series called The Protector's Diaries. Uh, so, Joseph, let's keep going, because <laughs> I really like the idea in your chapter on the heaven, heaven is a hologram. We touched on this a little bit before the break, but uh, can you elaborate on that? Because here's where the intersection of the psychic world, as I w- we were talking just before the break, uh, the psychic world and the quantum physics world start to meet, and I think that's really fascinating, and you begin that chapter by talking about mystics and uh, enlightened people, sages, and near-death experiencers. Um, So tell us about this idea of heaven as a hologram. Well, uh, as I mentioned previously, M-theory gives us this framework for a location, if you will, for the heavens, because they define this, what they call the bolt, what I call the energy verse, as a multi-layered structure, and these layers they call brains, B-R-A-N-E. And brain is a contraction of the word membrane. So the brains are um, things that are separate from one another, if you will. And they enclose regions, and in those regions, or in those realms, the energy density is higher or lower, or put it the other way, the energy density has higher frequency, Uh, the energy has higher frequency and therefore is more dense uh, with energy. And the M-theorists talk about these um, as being interdependent one on the other. Mm -hmm. So you have these levels of energy that go up the scale into higher and higher frequencies, into greater and greater energy energy density. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they'll describe the brain world as being like uh, individual slices in a loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. So they very much use this layer... uh, concept to describe it 
So here we have a scientific discipline describing an enormous alternate reality, not alternate, but unseen by us reality that is pure energy is, and this gets hard for the, us to visualize, two-dimensional because it has no space and is um, essentially so vast as to be infinite. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the scientific description. Mm -hmm. If you then look to the traditions of all the world's religions, and most religious traditions, however small they might be, nearly all of them have a concept of heavens. And these heavens are described by saints and sages and saviors. They're described by near-death experiencers. And their descriptions are of luminous, pure energy realms that nonetheless have forms, but as uh, Sri Yukteswar put it, Sri Yukteswar is the spiritual teacher of Paramahansa Yogananda, as he put it, everybody in those realms exists as coordinated images of light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they don't have material bodies, but they might appear that way. Mm -hmm. So also what is described by, um, again, many saints, sages, near-death experiencers, is that heavens have levels. That there is a lower level of heaven, sort of the first rung, if you will, of us uh, learning and growing through incarnations and achieving higher and higher levels of heaven as we advance. And that this concept, you, know, you find it with the Buddhists, you find it with Islam, you find it in Christianity, you find it in Hinduism, really you find it everywhere. And many of them have seven levels of heaven. And in brain theory, there often are seven brains. So there's a lot of sort of structural correlations there. Mm -hmm. So starting with that as a kind of a foundation for what I'm about to say, you also have the notion I mentioned uh, just before that all of the physical universe is a holographic projection mm -hmm. from this brain world. Now, M theorists and string theorists in general um, suggest that the hologram information in the energy verse mm -hmm. is simple. It's the, it's the rules, it's the laws of how matter and energy interact. And so those laws are being projected into our universe and that makes the universe unfold in a lawful manner according to that information coming from the energy verse. Mm -hmm. Other um, physicists such as David Bohm suggested that there's more to it 
than that in this energy verse, that there are kind of elemental forms like shapes, um, a little bit like uh, Plato's theory of there being perfect forms that then manifest in the physical world. But I think both of those, either the laws or perfect forms, aren't enough to explain how our physical universe can be continuously created. Mm -hmm. So the notion of a holographic projection is it never stops. Right. It's not as if uh, the holographic projection just started the Big Bang and then the projection goes away. The notion of a holographic projection is it is a continuous. It's like a movie. Right. So if it's more like a movie and less like a bunch of um, laws being sent from that energy verse, then there has to be a very complex hologram that is that movie in film form, so to speak, before it's projected into three-dimensionality. So if that's the case, then the leap I made is that there is a um, perfect match to our physical universe in the energy verse that is the ongoing movie template for what we experience here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, well, go ahead. The connection, just to finish, so then the yeah. connection to your question about um, how that ties into psychic phenomena and uh, ties into our own abilities that we have to, you know, like manifest the placebo effect, is that our minds affect our own hologram. Mm -hmm. And the moment anything in our hologram changes because of our thoughts, it instantly manifests in the physical. Right. And this can explain how, you know, instantaneous physiological changes can take place, instantaneous healing, even longer-term healing where the, you know, the normal means of healing are, are not apparent. Mm -hmm. um, what, you know, often people think of as miraculous healing can take place because the mind of that person changes their own template, their own other self, energy self, in this energy verse, which you can also think of as the astral verse, the astral regions. And the instant it changes it in energy form, that is then holographically projected into physical form. So you're talking about the people that well, in all kinds of different healings, but also people that have disorders like multiple personality disorder or 
uh, where they actually transform, their physical body actually transforms. Correct. Yeah, yeah I find that one of the most fascinating corroborations of this notion, of this model. Um, most people know that people who um, you know, have these traumatic experiences can kind of splinter into multiple personalities as a kind of protective way of mm -hmm. avoiding the, the trauma. Right. And it's well known that these personalities can be quite distinct. But most people don't realize that when one personality comes and the other leaves, that it can bring with it actual physical changes that take place instantly. For example, some personalities have moles mm -hmm. or scars mm -hmm. that the other personalities do not have. Uh -huh. Or eye some color. Some personalities are left-handed where others are right-handed. Uh -huh. And you mentioned... Some, pers you some mentioned personalities have different eye color. Right, yeah, that was the one that really got me when I was reading that. It was like, eye color? Are you kidding? <laughs> but that's true. I mean, it's so fascinating. And it happens instant, instantaneously, in my opinion, because each personality comes in with the deep conviction that that is what they're like. Right. That it's almost as if each personality has their own subconscious mind. Right, right. Fascinating. Well, then, uh, if enlightenment, I'm going to just throw this out there because I've been thinking about it while you've been talking, if enlightenment is becoming uh, self-aware of your God consciousness or the holographic uh, light that comes through our film, so to speak, if we recognize that we are that light and we recognize that we we relate to it, we start to uh, embody it, then we disappear the difference between the other world and this world, that we can, we can get to heaven in this world, in this moment, um, in a certain way to, to put it. Uh, we can become the holographic presence, which then as we live that reality, we are living in parallel universes with other people that are here and may not have that reality. Right. Yeah, it opens up all kinds of fascinating um, kind of insights into how we live. Yeah. I think we are, you could say easily, that we are all interdimensional beings, that mm -hmm. uh, it's not as if when we're here, in the sense that we're sensing and perceiving the physical universe, it's not as if we are separate from this subtle energy right. that is also us. We can't separate them, in fact. If you didn't have this energy hologram self, this astral body, your physical body would just vanish. Right. So we are constantly living in multiple dimensions, and a third dimension of which is the realm of thought, an even more subtle level of reality that kind of underlies this vast energy realm as well. So we can shift our awareness. We can't 
create or not have any of those bodies um, just by mere wishing, but we can shift our awareness of what we are uh, predominantly aware of. And I think that's really the measure of uh, spiritual advancement, uh, spiritual experience, is becoming aware, more aware, of the reality beyond your physical body. That's always there. It's always present. But it's obscured by us paying attention, more attention, to what our senses are telling us. That's why meditation is so key. Meditation, as I explained earlier, is really the process of going beyond the body, becoming still, becoming inwardly absorbed. And when you're successful in that stillness and that inner absorption, then what you experience is this energy self, is your astral body. And if you go deep enough, you experience not only your astral body, but the entire astral region, the entire energy verse in which that astral body exists. And that's what happens when you die, is you immediately start tuning in to that reality, because you no longer have the senses. You no longer have a physical body to um, kind of distract you from that truth, and suddenly you're there. For people who don't believe this is going to happen, it can be very disorienting. Yes. Be in that other state, and a lot of them will... Uh, from what I understand, actually deny it and kind of resist this whole notion of being a part of it, while others uh, embrace it and, you know, begin to have this experience that all the saints and sages describe, all the near-death experiencers describe, of just this unconditioned joy, this unconditioned peace. It just is. You're, You're drinking it in intuitively uh, from every direction because that is more the essence of the energy verse than what we normally experience in the physical universe. Right. It's an unconditionally loving place or or presence or consistent, for lack of a better word, realm, then uh, that's my experience of it too. It's just as we identify with ourselves as those uncon- that unconditionally, unconditional love, we become that, and then we be- then we transform ourselves and the people around us. It's it's and and then they they also in turn transform as they're working on on healing the separation in our systems from the thinking of separation as wound or victimhood or. You know, as we heal that, we can actually move into that unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have to. We don't have to wait for that moment when we die. Right. We don't have to have the you know good karma. Although I know that near death experiences are also often very very challenging as well. They're not unalloyed good karma, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But don't have to wait for that. Uh, kind of experience, we can achieve that same awareness through meditating, through stillness and inner absorption. And that's really the heart of every spiritual teaching. Right, right. Go within, 
experience that. And while you're still here, because we all can't necessarily master that in one sitting once we hear the news, we learn to serve others and give and um, which is kind of foreign to people who haven't had that experience. One of the keynotes I'm sure you know of people having had near-death experiences is they, they come back and they say, well, there's, there's nothing else I should be doing except helping others. Right. Which right. is so clearly obvious to them that that is for their own highest good and the highest good of others and uh, they just live their life in, in service in small ways and large. Right, right, right. That's absolutely true. Oh, this has been so fascinating. So to close, do we have a, do you have a, a favorite quote? It could be from anyone, actually. It doesn't have to be just Yogananda or Sri Yukteswar, but is there a particular quote that you, you do, you, ha, you have a lot of quotes in the book that are just wonderful that really give people a sense of what you're talking about, both in near-death experience and from the mystics and from the physicists. Is there one that you really want to share with our audience? There's so many. One of my favorite from a physicist is that matter is the invisible, invisible organization of energy. Mm-hmm. And that invisible organization is coming from our hologram, coming from our own thoughts that are shaping our hologram. Um, so many quotes that are I have, I have hundreds of favorite quotes, so it's hard to pick a favorite. <laughs> but maybe I'll leave you one with it that's intriguing, is that in the, um, in the Bible, Jesus says, we are gods. Right. Right. We are so much more than we know when we live just in the confines of our physical bodies. That's right. Uh, we are truly unlimited. We are children of God, and the more aware we become uh, walking up this ladder, climbing this ladder of becoming more aware of our subtle energy, becoming more aware of our thoughts, leads us ultimately to becoming aware of our our unity, our oneness with God. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you about this book, and I, I highly, again, highly recommend it. It's called The Physics of God by Joseph, Joseph Selvey. He's just given us quite an understanding of the complexity of the quantum physics and consciousness and M-theory and uh, neuroscience that's, that's in this book, and there's so much more um, because of there, there's so many wonderful quotes and understandings of multiple personality disorder and near-death experiences. So anyone interested in this topic, I highly recommend it. So, Joseph, thank you so much for um, uh, spending time with me today and talking to our audience about the f- uh, physics and God. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Let me just toss in that if anybody's interested in going uh, any deeper, you can go to my website, www.physicsandgod.com. Mm-hmm. And you can see events that I have, and there's an online course in there that uh, people might be interested in oh. uh, if they want to go much deeper. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is Robin White Turtle Listening, and the show is Evolve.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.